If you don't have a Bible today, the men in the aisle have a Bible they would love to give to you, and so you can follow along in the passage. It's marked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take one, and you can keep that as our gift to you. Thank you very much. I was just going to say, this is the good water here. I, I got it at Sam's Club the other day, and uh, it's very cheap. It was amazingly cheap. It's uh, It's only about eight cents a bottle, and if you want some, go back to the back, and big sign that says Flint Water back there, and <laughs> it's good stuff, though. I really enjoy it. I'm uh, glad that uh, Pastor Ken is uh, still here today, and we'll be dealing with the uh, anger problem in the uh, second hour, the Discovering God Hour. Uh, The last few weeks, I've had a couple of incidents that have raised my anger quotient, I have to to confess, this morning. The last one was this uh, past week. Um, I broke my glasses a while back. I do have them this morning here. Um, Actually, it was the frames that broke. I get along without them most of the time. If I want to see real close, I have to use them or something. But I broke them, and uh, just the lint, just the frames. But I couldn't get another pair of frames. The frames were, had gone out of production, so I was going to have to get new lenses and new frames and get a, you know, another prescription. And these are these have these are these progressive. They're going to cost four hundred dollars, you know, to get these glasses. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe there's somebody who can repair these glasses. <clears throat> So I get on Google, I go out on the internet, you know, and I'm Googling around there, and I find uh, this place in New York City, this repair place in New York City. And they say, you know, for just a reasonable price, they'll repair your glasses. So I got online and did all that. Well, the charges sort of kept adding up, you know. Uh, Anyway... It ended up to be about 90-some dollars, but, well, it's better than 400 so I sent them off to New York, you know. And um, they said it would take two weeks. Great. Two weeks, you'll get them back, you know. So I sent them off. As soon as they, you know, I got, a, I got an email saying, we've got your glasses. Uh, as soon as they got there, I got an, I got an uh, they charged my credit card, you know, the full amount, charged it. And then rather suspiciously, Somebody began to use my credit card information in New York City. So uh, they uh, ordered some food at Applebee's in 42nd Street in New York City. And then they uh, got a ride on something called Lyft.com to go get the food. So that was an adventure. I had to... Uh, I had to, uh, you know, get a new credit card and change this place for your credit card. You know, all this business. Had to go through all that and so forth. And the glasses wouldn't come. I sent an email. Finally, six weeks. Six weeks. Got the glasses. I just got them this past week. But on the day the glasses came, I got a text message from these people. And in the text message, uh, the person who wrote the text message said... uh, Listen, I'm, we're seeing this text message because your salesperson would like a tip. Your salesperson would like a tip for the excellent service you received. 
I didn't even know I had a salesperson. I just <laughs> typed it into the computer, you know. And so, and, and, and the text said, you'll be getting an email giving you the information on how you can use your new credit card to give this, you know, tip, you know, to, to the person. So I might uh, need that series later on this morning. I was actually doing some Googling in connection with this message because I wanted to say something about Facebook at the beginning, and I was kind of interested to know uh, how popular is Facebook. So I went out to the Internet again, I Googled, and they said the most popular site on the Internet is Google, actually. But Facebook was right there, you know, close behind was Facebook. And I did that because uh, I wanted to see, you know, what was the likelihood that all you folks in this auditorium would know about Facebook. And I assume, since it's so popular, that most of you, maybe all of you, are familiar with Facebook. And if you're like me, you have joined Facebook and you look at Facebook. And so um, one of the things that's interesting about Facebook, I've noticed, and maybe you've noticed this too, is that... Um, Sometimes they will bring up posts from previous years. They'll bring back uh, various things that you have written on the site. They call it, actually, they call it, I think, uh, your memories on Facebook. And they'll bring back things that you wrote or so forth. And um, this past week, a series of posts that I wrote back in 2010 began showing up. And these uh, were very poignant, very emotional posts for me because I had written these posts in 2010 about the death of my mother. Uh, it was this very week, seven years ago, that my mother passed away. As I said, uh, Facebook, Facebook brought back some of those posts that I had written at the time. My mother lived most of her life in the state of Virginia, where I grew up. But in 2005, she was about 81 years old, and her health was such, she didn't feel like she could live by herself any longer. So uh, we brought her here to Virginia, and uh, she lived with Pansy and me for uh, five years. Now, she had had some health problems before she came. She had, a, she had a couple of heart attacks. She'd actually had bypass surgery. But during the five years she lived here, she was in excellent health, really pretty good health. She didn't have to go to the hospital or anything. But uh, this very time, seven years ago, on a Saturday, she started feeling very bad. She had a lot of pain, shortness of breath. So we immediately drove her over to Oakwood Hospital on that Saturday. And they performed a number of uh, procedures and so forth. Ultimately, to no avail, she died the following Monday. It was a difficult time for uh, Pansy and me. <clears throat> My mom came to live with us. Uh, well, before she came to live with us, uh, in truth, uh, I was not very close to my mom. Uh, when I was 18 years old, I went off to college. Then I eventually got in the military, got married, moved out of state. So for most of my life, I was never really around my mom or my dad after I was about 18. But in the five years that my mom came to live with us, we became very close, very close family. We developed a close bond. 
And it's hardly a week go, goes by that Pansy and I don't reflect on my mom. We think about her in the house and we think about some happy incident and so forth. We recall a lot of pleasant memories. We're sad she's gone. But thankfully, thankfully, we do not, as the Apostle Paul said, grieve like those who have no hope. My mother was a believer in Jesus Christ all the time I knew her. Now, she was not a perfect Christian, like most of us. But she did trust firmly in the work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And I look forward to the day when I'll see her again in heaven. And we take comfort in the fact that she's there rejoicing with her Lord Jesus Christ and with her loved ones, especially uh, with my father, who she talked about especially a lot in her final years. Dying is not a subject that most of us care to think about, especially the death of someone close to us. Even less do we want to discuss our own mortality, our own dying. Unless you're like some of us gray hairs here, I doubt it's a subject that crosses your mind very much. When I was, say, in my 30s, I was a Christian, but I didn't think about death very much. <laughs> I assumed, you know, I'm going to live a long life and, you know, so it's just not something you think about at all. But as you get older, as you realize you have fewer years left, fewer years ahead of you than are behind you, and for some of us a lot fewer, as your health begins to fail, as the old body no longer works like it used to, you begin to take seriously your mortality. But did you know the Bible says it's a good thing, it's a good thing to think about one's own mortality, no matter how old you are. In Ecclesiastes 7.2, Solomon says, It's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. The New Living Translation puts it this way, Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. It's better to go to a funeral than a party because at a funeral funeral you're likely to think about your own mortality about the brevity of life and that's a good thing if it causes you to reflect on what's important in life why am i here what am i doing with my life life in that sense, thinking about our own mortality is good if it causes us to examine our lives in the light of Scripture, in the light of God's will for our lives. It may cause us to check our priorities and maybe make some changes in our life that we know we should make. In this passage before us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, Paul is thinking about dying the serious possibility of his own death. We know that Paul was engaged in very hazardous uh, journeys, very hazardous gospel ministry on these various missionary journeys he went on. The book of Acts describes a lot of those difficult times. 
It tells about when he was beaten with rods, when he was scourged with a whip, and even when he was stoned. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I face death every day. That's how difficult his life was. In the paragraph right before our text here, back in chapter 4, Paul is recounting there many of the difficulties, many of the hardships he was willingly he was willing to endure in order to bring the gospel to the Corinthians and to others. In verse 16 of chapter 4, he says, Outwardly we are wasting away. Outwardly are we are wasting away. But in fact, that's really the experience of every person here, no matter what our age is. We are all slowly but surely wasting away. But the good news is that while we're wasting away, Paul goes on in chapter 4, verse 16, and says, Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For, Paul continues in verse 17, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what on is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So as Paul reflects on his own mortality in chapter 4, in chapter 5, verse 1, he explains to us what happens to the believer who dies. What happens, as Paul says in 5.1, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed? Well, this subject of our own mortality, our own death, raises a number of questions for the believer in Jesus Christ. Is death something to be desired or is it to be dreaded? What about people who claim to have out-of-body experiences where they die and they float around and they look down at their dead bodies and then they come back to life? What about the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory, which teaches that a believer, when they die, goes to a place of punishment after death? Does what Paul says here enable us to evaluate those claims? What exactly happens to a believer at death and after death? We've inserted in your uh, program an outline of our passage today. You might want to look at that and sort of follow along as we go through the passage this morning. I think we can, uh, in this passage, divide it up into two main sections. That is, uh, Paul makes two major points in chapter 5. The first one is, what is death like for a Christian? The first thing he's, he explains is, What is death like for a Christian? He's explaining the nature of death here, in a sense. And he pictures death in two ways. First, he says, A here, death for the Christian is like taking down a tent. It's like taking down a tent. He says in verse 1, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed... So death is like taking down a tent. The phrase taking down a tent, of course, 
is a figure of speech. It's a metaphor. It's a way of referring to the human body. The word tent is an appropriate metaphor. It's a fitting way to describe our relatively, relatively brief and temporary life on earth. Our life here is brief. It's like we're living in a tent. Other writers use this kind of language to describe the earthly life. In the Gospel of John, for instance, John, when he's talking about Jesus, even his coming to earth, in John 1.14, he says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Greek word there is really almost the same word as the word that Paul uses here. Made his dwelling among us means to pitch his tent. The word pitched his tent among us is the idea. Jesus was here for a relatively short time. You and I are here for a relatively short time. That's why John Bunyan said we're just like pilgrims here on earth. In the big scheme of things, in in light of eternity, our time is rather brief. And so it's a good thing from time to time to think about the brevity of life. Now, Paul speaks here of our tent that is being destroyed. For our earthly hat we live in is destroyed. This is actually the word destroyed is the common word for taking down a tent. If we take down our tent is the metaphor. Paul uses a very similar expression in a number of places. It's not always translated the same way, but like 2 Timothy 4, 6, he says, For the time of my departure is near. It's really almost exactly the same Greek word. For taking down the tent. For the time, Paul says, to take down my tent and move on is near. Philippians 1.23, I desire to depart. I desire, he says, to take down my tent and to be with Christ. So Paul is saying that our lives here on earth are transitory. They're temporary. They are, as James says, like a vapor, like a mist that vanishes for a little while. Lasts for a little while and then vanishes. When our lives are over, it will be like taking down a tent, a temporary structure. In that sense, there's nothing for the Christian to fear. He or she is simply striking their tent and moving on to a new place, a new location. Around the year A.D. 125... 125. That'd be about 70 years after Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians. In AD 125, a Greek man by the name of Aristides wrote a letter to a friend. We have Aristides' letter. And Aristides is not a Christian, but he's sort of fascinated by this new religion, Christianity. And he's trying to explain to his friend, who he's writing to, some things about Christianity and his interest in Christianity. And what what fascinates him is how people are sort of are, are interested and are flocking. It's, it's, it's very successful around where he's at. And this is what he says at one place. He says, if any righteous man among the Christian passes from this world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God. And they accompany his body with songs and thanksgivings as if he were setting out from one place to another nearby. See, death is not to be feared for the Christian because he or she is simply, as Aristides said, 
setting out from one place to another nearby. We simply take down our tent and move to a new location. So not only is the Christian's death described as the taking down of a tent, but B, death for a Christian means the departure from this mortal body. It means the departure from this mortal body. That's in verse 8, the first part of verse 8. Paul says there, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body. So, death is being away from, departing from the body. Verse 8 is in opposite parallelism with verse 6. Verse 6 says, therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We are confident, verse 8, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul contrasts two possible places for a Christian to reside, either in the body or with the Lord. If a Christian dies, if their earthly tent is dissolved, we are away from the body, but are at home with the Lord. Until the rapture, when Jesus returns at the end of the church age, death for the Christian means that they are away from the body temporarily until the resurrection. In verse 8, Paul says, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So Paul's preference is to leave this earthly existence in order to participate exclusively in the heavenly life. And who wouldn't want to do that? The preference is positive, resonance with the Lord. It's not negative, emancipation from the body. In other words, Paul is not wishing to get rid of his body. He's not hoping to die. But as I noted in chapter 4, death was a real and frequent possibility for the apostle. Paul's not looking to be a martyr, but if he had his preference... And I should say none of us have control over that. None of us have can have what we want. That's in the hands of the Lord. It's the Lord's will that governs that kind of thing. But Paul says if he had his wish, he would rather be with the Lord, even though that meant leaving his body. In Paul's day, the almost universal belief in pagan Roman and Greek religion was that our existence in the physical body was something to be dreaded. It was a terrible, dreadful thing. The body was often called the tomb of the soul or the prison house of the soul. Pagan philosophy believed that many of man's problems were caused by his body, that the body was the source of sin. But that's pagan philosophy. It's not Christianity. In truth, sin resides in our sinful nature, not in our body. Sin is a part of our inner being, our immaterial aspect, not our material aspect. Jesus, for example, had a human body, but he was without sin. It doesn't mean that there is no disadvantage to this, to our present physical bodies. Sin, the fall, has affected the body negatively. And our own personal sins affect our bodies, harm our bodies. Notice verse 2 in our text here where Paul says, Meanwhile we groan. Meanwhile, that is in this body, in this physical body we groan, Paul says. 
The body is subject to disease, injury, and disability. But in spite of the limitations of the body, the Christian hope is not to get rid of the body. On the contrary, the Christian looks forward to a bodily existence in the future resurrection body, in a glorified body, when Jesus returns at the rapture. So for the Christian, there is, there should be no fear in death because as we've seen, death is like taking out a, taking down a tent and moving to a new location, in our case, heaven. Death means we will depart this mortal body to be with the Lord in heaven. Now let's look at secondly here, Roman numeral two, what happens to a Christian after death? What happens to a Christian after death? Paul mentions three things that happen to us after death. Three results. First, he says, A, we will receive a building from God. That was the second part of verse 1. For we know that if the earthly house tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, then he describes it, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. So he describes it as an eternal house, something that's eternal. We know what that means. But what exactly does Paul mean when he says that it's not built by human hands? Well, fortunately, we have the same exact phrase used in another section of Scripture over in Hebrews 9, 11. And there the writer says this, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. So Christ ascends back to heaven to become our high priest, our intercessor, into the perfect tabernacle. And the writer says, through the more and greater perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. And then he tells us what that means. That is to say, not part of this creation. So the phrase, not made with human hands, is explained by the following, that is to say, not part of this creation. So back in verse 1 of our text, when Paul says that this building we're going to get from God is eternal and is not made by human hands, it's simply a way of saying that it's heavenly. It's from God. So our building from God is something that is heavenly, comes from God, that's eternal. Now this is the same building from God, the same eternal, heavenly, resurrection body that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which Christians, of course, will receive when Christ returns at the rapture of the church. Paul describes that event in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. He says, listen, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, And we will be changed for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. So at the rapture of the church, those Christians who are alive at the time, along with those who have previously died, will all receive their glorified resurrection bodies. Now, Paul continues in verse two of our text. He says, meanwhile, that is until the rapture. Meanwhile, we groan. 
that is in this present body with all these diseases and disabilities and limitations, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because, he says, when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. That is, without a body. For, Paul goes on to say, while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So to be unclothed or naked means to be without a body. Paul would like to be alive at the rapture so so that he could, as he says in verse 2 and 4, be clothed with his heavenly dwelling. Those of us who are alive at the rapture, if Christ would come this morning, wouldn't that be wonderful? (laughs) If he would come this morning, we would just put that resurrection body right on top of these bodies like an overcoat. So while it's very true that outwardly we're wasting away, we can look forward, my Christian friends, to an eternal life and an eternal body prepared by God for us, perfectly fitted for our new existence. In truth, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's really fully possible for us to appreciate the wonderful and glorious nature of the body that awaits us. I just, we just can't imagine what that's going to be like. No more disabilities. No more pain. No more disease. Now, God has not promised to deliver us from suffering and pain in this life. In fact, He often uses those things in our lives to bring us closer to Him, to help us grow spiritually. But oh, my friends, what a future we look forward to. So Paul says, first of all, that if we die before the rapture, our present body will be dissolved. But we will one day receive an eternal, glorious resurrection body. But Paul says, in the meantime, when we die, be, in your outline, we will dwell in the presence of the Lord. If we die before the rapture, we will dwell in the presence of the Lord. As he says in verse 8, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. To be away from the body is instantly to be at home with the Lord. This clearly implies that the moment the believer is away from the body, that is, the believer dies, the next stage begins immediately. That is, being in the presence of the Lord. In other words, there's no time gap. There's no temporal gap between being away from the body and at home with the Lord. This means there is no purgatory, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches, where a believer must go to be purged of sins before they can enter heaven. To be away from the body is to be immediately at home with the Lord. Also, there's no such thing as an out-of-the-body experience. A believer is either dead and thus out of the body and with the Lord, or one is not dead and one is in one's body. Those are the only two possibilities. Now, you could be in a coma, certainly, in a hospital room, be unconscious, but you can't be floating around outside your body looking down at your body in the hospital bed. 
If Christians are out of their body, they are with the Lord. Nothing could be plainer from this passage. Many of you um, probably recognize the name D. James Kennedy. D. James Kennedy. I didn't realize it until I looked this up uh, that he has been dead for seven years. He died back in, I mean, ten years. He died back in 2007. Dr. Kennedy was the pastor of the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He was a well-known evangelical pastor, writer, and uh, TV preacher. He, he had a weekly TV program. I saw it many times. Maybe you saw it over the years. He was uh, widely known for having created something called Evangelism Explosion, which is probably the most widely used evangelistic curriculum around. I was intrigued by something he wrote a few years ago uh, before his death, just a few years before his death, before he died. And I think it captures Paul's thinking here. Here's what he says. Quote, uh, now I know that someday I'm going to come to what some people will say is the end of this life. They will probably put me in a box and roll me right down here in front of the church. And some people will gather around and a few people will cry. But I have told them not to do that because I don't want them to cry. I want them to begin the service with the doxology and end with the hallelujah chorus. Because I'm not going to be there. And I'm not going to be dead. I will be more alive than I have ever been in my life. I will be looking down upon you poor people who are still in the land of dying. And have not yet joined me in the land of living. And I will be alive forevermore in greater health and vitality and joy than ever, ever I or anyone has known before. Well, finally, Paul says that the third result of the believer's death is C here in our outline. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. The judgment seat of Christ is a judgment for believers that takes place shortly after the rapture of the church. Unbelievers, those who have not trusted Christ, are of course judged at what is called the great white throne judgment, which is described in Revelation chapter 20. Paul says here we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is a compulsory appearance before Christ's tribunal. The word appear here in verse 10 has the idea of being manifested, of being exposed, to make plain. It's actually the same word in verse 11, the exact same word that's translated there plain. Paul says, Since then, we know what it is to fear God. We try to persuade others what we are is plain to God. It's apparent to God. And so Paul says that all of us, that is, each one individually, will be exposed or manifested at the judgment seat of Christ in order that we may receive a reward according to our works, he says. Now, works, of course, have no part in saving us. We are saved by faith alone, but God will nevertheless graciously reward us according to our faithful service for Christ. 
The believer's works, their service will be judged, Paul says, to determine if they are good, good means worthy of reward, or whether they are bad, that is worthless. Those who faithfully serve Christ in this life will be rewarded. Those who are not faithful will, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, suffer loss. Now, clearly believers are not there to be condemned, that is punished, at the judgment seat of Christ for any sins we commit. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The atonement has settled that matter. Jesus was punished for our sins on the cross, all of our sins. But several passages suggest to me that at this judgment, we're going to have some regrets about our lack of faithfulness. To the Lord. As I just noted, verse 10 seems to indicate that the believer will be exposed at the judgment. Writing to these same Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4 5, Paul says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time until the Lord comes and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. And then there's 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So I think there will be some genuine regrets for all of us at the judgment seat of Christ. And so we ought to think about that. Now, I don't want to overdo the sorrow aspect of the judgment seat. To overdo the sorrow aspect is to make heaven like hell. But neither do we want to underdo the sorrow aspect of the judgment seat because that makes faithfulness inconsequential. To say our lack of commitment to the cause of Christ doesn't matter much. One writer has compared in a small way the judgment seat of Christ to a commencement ceremony, a graduation ceremony. And I think it in a little way, captures what it might be like in the sense that maybe you can remember your high school graduation. Um, At the graduation, you were sitting there and maybe you had some regrets. You may have thought, you know, I wish I'd have done a little better, wish I would have studied a little more or paid more attention or, you know. But the overwhelming emotion is joy. It's not remorse. You're happy that you're graduating, you know. You're happy that you completed the course. You don't leave the auditorium weeping. (laughs) You're rather thankful that you have made it through, that you've achieved your high school diploma. Well, in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10, the apostle Paul has given us what I've sometimes called his theology of death. There is no sense of despair in Paul's mind. For although death is a disruptive event, it doesn't change one's position in Jesus Christ. That position remains the same whether one is in the body or absent from the body. And death brings us immediately into the glorious presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And beyond that, we can say, as Paul did, we can look forward to our building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. When my mom came to live with us in 2005, we lived in Allen Park at the time. 
And we built an addition onto our house so that she could have a, a larger bedroom, a sitting room, bedroom, setting room combination, a walk-in closet, a bathroom. After my mother's funeral, I wrote this on Facebook. The hardest thing for me to is, the hardest thing for me is to walk into that addition. I try to avoid it. But when I do, another passage from Scripture comes home. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. We took Mom to the hospital exactly one week ago at about the time I'm writing this. She never returned. Everything she owned is still in those rooms exactly as she left them. She took none of them with her. Most of what we value in this life has little or no value in the life to come. Only a regenerated and sanctified heart benefits us in the life to come. Let's close this morning, friends, by meditating on verse 9. As Paul thinks on the prospect of death and the judgment to follow, he reflects on the incentive that this provides for Christian living. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from the Lord, away from it. That's a great incentive to end on. So we make it our goal to please him. Even though outwardly we're wasting away, we know we have a glorious future, friends. So we can fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. And by God's grace, we can make it our goal to please the Lord Jesus. And we should. We must. May God help us in the days that we have left here on earth to do that. Our take-home truth this morning, death should hold no fear for the Christian, but the certainty of our appearing before Jesus should motivate and inspire us to please him. We'll close in prayer in just a moment, and we'll have our final song. But I want to say a final word here this morning to those with us today who are not believers in Jesus Christ. I want to say something to those who have never trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. The title of my message today was Life After Death. And I emphasize that death is not to be feared for the Christian. But that's not true for those of you who have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you have never trusted Jesus to save you, you should be fearful about death. Because there is no life after death for you. There's only more death. There's eternal death. And there's no way to soften this. If you've not trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, then you will be eternally separated from God. You will experience eternal conscious punishment in hell. But you can have eternal life with Jesus that I talked about. You can have it today. If you will acknowledge that you are a person who has sinned against God, if you'll repent of your sin, that means change your mind about sin. Turn from your sin. 
Turn to Jesus. Believe in Jesus, the Son of God, who died for sinners on the cross. Trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Commit yourself to Him, and you will be saved. And you can do do that this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the sure promise that we as believers pass from this life, that when we pass from this life, We will find ourselves immediately in your presence. We know we don't deserve this. And that it's only because of your grace shown to us in Jesus Christ that we will live eternally with you. We rejoice today as we remember the words of the Apostle Paul. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring us everything, to bring everything under control, will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.